Hi there. I'm Jen Hale Christie, and you're listening to Preach Her. This podcast is designed around the reality that many of our churches are shrinking because we haven't created a place where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church or never even went, this podcast is for you. Welcome. Have you heard about our Patreon community? It is an awesome way to join me and others in this good work, whether you want to support women preachers and make sure that this work continues, or if you want to actually partner with me and have direct input, like you want to have a 30 minute phone call with me every month, or you want to join the sermon prep team, or you want to come and visit my family um, in Portland and help produce an episode. There are opportunities for you to engage at whatever level feels good for you. And everyone who's in the community gets access to our monthly letter um, delivered to your inbox at the end of every month. So click the link in the show notes and let me know what you think. Shout out to Sheila and Steve who have recently joined the community. Welcome to season three. In this season, we are going to be diving into the book of Acts. Now in your Bible, it's probably listed as the Acts of the Apostles, but I was educated to instead think of it as the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And here's why. This whole book is about how the Holy Spirit is moving. It's moving throughout the Mediterranean, churches are springing up all over, and this tiny little Jesus movement that started with a group of Jews who you wouldn't expect to even be friends, let alone traveling companions and co-workers, how this little movement grew and multiplied exponentially, spreading out into non-Jewish communities, which are often referred to as Gentiles. Um, oh, I should also mention, if you haven't heard this already, um, that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were both written by the same author. It's a two-volume work. So the Gospel of Luke follows the life of Jesus, and Acts follows the lives of the apostles, disciples, and early Christians. So in Luke, we have Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, working signs and wonders, drawing tons of people to him, and preaching constantly. And at the very end of Luke, after Jesus has been crucified, the women find the tomb empty and the men don't believe them. We heard a powerful witness to that text in Kelly Edmiston's sermon just a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't heard it yet, I definitely recommend you go check that out immediately or as soon as you're done with this episode. Then some disciples have an encounter with the risen Jesus on the road, but they don't know it's him. And when they actually sit down and break bread together, their eyes are open to see that this is actually Jesus with them. Like he's not dead anymore. He really was raised just like the women said. And here he is with us. And right as they figure that out, he vanishes. And they run back to tell the believers who are still gathered. And while they're still talking, Jesus just appears among them. There's this whole weird like teleporting thing happening at the end of Luke. Um, So they spend some time together. Jesus explains the scriptures some more. He tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. It's going to come down from heaven and fill them with power. Um, And then instead of vanishing again, they actually get to see him taken up into heaven, whatever that looked like. Pretty weird stuff, right? It actually just gets more interesting. So the book of Acts opens with a retelling of that brief time when Jesus was back with them after he'd been resurrected. Then we find out that the apostles did as they were told. So we're in present day Jerusalem in a room among the 11 apostles, Mary, the mother of Jesus and other women, Jesus's brothers and a bunch of other believers. And this place is just a buzz in prayer. There were about 120 of them all together. Peter stands up and leads the group in picking a new 12th apostle since, as you may remember, Judas had betrayed Jesus and um, he was riddled with shame and guilt and he killed himself. 
So chapter two, the first 14 verses, that's where we're focusing today. Here's the passage, and um, I'm reading from the message, which we will talk about later. Okay, here we go. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different languages as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run. Then when they heard, one after another, their own mother tongues being spoken, they were thunderstruck. They couldn't for the life of them figure out what was going on, and they kept saying, Aren't these all Galileans? How come we're hearing them talk in our various mother tongues? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, visitors from Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, immigrants from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, even Cretans and Arabs. They're speaking our languages, describing God's mighty works. Their heads were spinning. They couldn't make head or tail of any of it. They talked back and forth, confused. What's going on here? Others joked, they're drunk on cheap wine. The word of the Lord. So it's Pentecost, the Spring Harvest Festival. This is 50 days after Passover, and it was a time for the Jewish people to bring an offering from the grain that they had been harvesting for the last 50 days. And this was one of those big festivals that people would travel in from out of town to celebrate. So those are the Jews from all over the world, quote, um, who came running when the action started. They're the ones who spoke all these different languages and were shocked to find all these people who should have been speaking Greek or Aramaic, and instead they were speaking their languages from all over. And they are freaking out a little bit, and it's a little chaotic, and we have our first signs of humor in the book. You guys, you know there's funny stuff in the Bible, right? I totally didn't know that when I was growing up. I thought it was just this super solemn, serious, no-nonsense book. But check this out. Someone jokes that these people are drunk. I mean, what other explanation can there be? They're talking crazy talk. But Peter stands up and says, listen up, they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And I think that's Peter drawing the crowd in with some wry humor. He probably said that with like a little wink or at least a sly expression. And there's other funny stuff in this book. We'll get to some of this stuff in later episodes, but there's this one time when Peter gets busted out of jail. Um, So he's a wanted criminal. And when he goes to the house where his friends are, they leave him out there banging on the door. They forget to let him in. There are those um, seven sons of the high priest that we hear about in chapter 19. They don't actually believe in Jesus, but they're trying to cast out an evil spirit in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. So like, you know, not in Jesus's name, but like in the name of Paul who preaches Jesus, like a twice removed thing. And they thought like it worked for Paul so they could do it. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. They get shown up and beat up by that evil spirit and they run away naked. Okay, and then this is my favorite one. You guys have probably heard the story about when Paul's preaching and he's like really going on and on. And at midnight, a dude falls out of a third story window and dies. And you would think like everything would come to a screeching halt, right? Nope. Paul just pauses, goes downstairs, hugs the guy, and he's brought back to life. But seriously, like that would be a good sign that he needs to stop preaching, right? Like, like we're done. Like people are falling out of windows and dying. Like time to cut it off. Time to move along. Nope. He gets right back to it and he keeps preaching until dawn. Like it's a little ridiculous. 
Okay, back to our story for today. So when Jesus goes back to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of his followers, they go out and they start telling everybody, you know, making lots of other disciples. I mean, this was like life-changing, earth-shattering good news. And those first hearers, first believers, they wasted no time telling everyone about it. The news spread like wildfire. And I'm not saying that everyone believed, but so many people did, and a whole movement emerged. At first, it was a small group of Jews in a relatively small city who now understood their faith and their God and their purpose in a whole new way. And then it opened to include anyone, Jewish or otherwise. And as more and more diverse people heard and believed, the movement took on new life and really distinguished itself from its Jewish roots. And so when the book of Acts was written towards the end of the first century, this movement had really taken root outside of Judaism, and it was largely Gentile populated. So what Acts does is give that first century church and us an exciting collection of stories and speeches and miracles and missionary trips, all to tell us how the world as we know it came to be, to tell us how Christianity, this new way, came to be. And this is as good a time as any to share with you my faith about the Bible. So I have faith that it is a divinely inspired collection of writings that share truth and hope about God, the world, humanity, and the relationships between all of those. The Bible recounts history, though not always in a way that suits our postmodern sensibilities, poetry, song, parable, allegory, apocalypse, moral instruction, cultural realities, commandments, instructions for priests and ritual purity, all the things, right? So divinely inspired, but also lots and lots of human agency. Okay, in the decades that followed Jesus's life on earth, there were a lot of stories circulating about him. As you may know, the ancient Mediterranean world preserved their history orally for centuries, which means stories were passed down from generation to generation, told around campfires and dinner tables, and as written language developed, along with access to materials with which to write and keep things, so sacred stories were finally written down and preserved. They were compiled by various anonymous editors who copied from another written source or transcribed what they were hearing when one person dictated from a written copy, like they would get a bunch of scribes in a room and they would have one copy um, being spoken aloud while a bunch of people were um, writing it down at the same time. And private copies of sacred text were nearly impossible to come by. So they were read aloud in worship, they were sung, they were included as religious liturgies or told as folk tales. Much like today, these sacred texts were used for worship and study and moral instruction. And as we consider how the texts that came to be known as the New Testament developed, we see these communities copying and sharing writings with other churches. Like maybe one church had this letter from Paul and another church had the gospel according to Matthew. So these two communities each made a copy for the other. They also began to collect these writings and read them along with the Torah and the prophets. Those texts um, were considered sacred and authoritative at the time. So eventually, church leaders started to make lists of these important writings. And these lists were expanding and contracting over time because they were arguing a lot about which texts should and shouldn't be included as part of the sacred canon. Um, so I should back up just a little bit. When Jesus came along, the texts that we now call the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, those were recorded on scrolls, but they weren't all considered the authoritative canon. In fact, when Jesus walked the earth, only the law, 
um, in Hebrew, the Torah, the first five books of, of our Old Testament, only the law and the prophets, um, which in Hebrew is the Nevi'im, writings like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, all the minor prophets. Only those two collections of writings were considered authoritative. The canon of scripture was actually still open. Like, let that sink in. The canon of scripture was open. Nobody had come along and said, this is it. Bind up just these books. Nothing else ever gets to be declared the word of God or Bible or canon or sacred scripture. Okay, like it was open when Jesus came along. It wasn't until 100 CE, as in decades after Jesus's life on earth, that the writings were included. Okay, the writings in Hebrew are the Ketuvim, um, writings like Psalms, Job, Ruth, and Daniel. All of these texts were in circulation, and they were known in the Jewish community, but they didn't all carry equal weight. They weren't all considered by them to be like Bible or scripture in the way that we use those terms. Isn't it so interesting? Okay, things get really interesting when we read the New Testament with an understanding that the canon of the Hebrew Bible was still open. Okay, so like when New Testament writers refer to the quote scriptures, we should probably keep in mind that not only was that writer not referring to anything in our current New Testament, but as far as what we know of as the Hebrew Bible, decisions were still being made about what was in and what was out. So we can really only safely assume that a New Testament writer referring to quote the scriptures was referring to the law and the prophets. Is this as exciting and crazy to you guys as it is to me? This was just like mind blowing when I learned this stuff. So after Jesus was gone and there were all these you know, letters and stories and gospels circulating, I mean, he had really created quite a stir in the ancient world. And what his followers continued to do after he was gone, it was world changing. So there was a lot of buzz out there and it became challenging to try to separate fact from fiction, to determine what writings could be considered authoritative and held together with the writings that were already known as scripture. There were some church leaders who took it upon themselves to edit out the Jewish parts of the text or to select only those writings that fit with their own ideology. And then many others responded, putting forward their own list of what should be included and why. It actually took hundreds of years for church leaders to come to a general consensus as far as what writings would be considered scripture. Um, in the year 331, the church father Eusebius receives a letter from the Roman Emperor Constantine asking for 50 Bibles to be produced. So time to get our act together. What are we going to include in this quote Bible, right? By the beginning of the 5th century, um, the current 27 book New Testament that you know we have today was well established. So that does not include the Apocrypha. But even then, it wasn't totally settled. They still kept debating about what should or shouldn't be in there. I mean, have you ever picked up a Catholic Bible and compared it to a Protestant Bible? You'll see some books in that uh, in the Catholic one that aren't in the Protestant one. And beyond that, I mean, we give different weight to different books and texts, don't we? But you guys, it only gets more complicated from there. Because in the beginning, at least we were all speaking the same language, Greek. I mean, you know, Hebrew for the Old Testament. Greek for the new, mostly. I mean, we had some pretty early Latin translations too, but okay, my point is this. Once we move from one language to another, we opened a can of worms. Now we had to make not only decisions about like which which ones to keep or what was authoritative, but we had to make these interpretive decisions every step of the way. 
So all of the history and people and places and decisions and languages and authority and debates, all that stuff that went into those insanely thin pages of the Bible that maybe sits on your shelf or you've at least seen, it's so rich and interesting and complex. And it can challenge our faith. Okay, real talk, you guys. Many of you know that when I was in my early 20s, I went to seminary. One of the things that I was most excited about was getting to study the Bible in the original languages. I had a huge personal investment in learning what the Bible actually said about people like me, about women, particularly women who maybe sort of feel like God's calling them to do something that they were raised their whole life to think was not something they were allowed to do. And just more generally, like, what did the Bible actually say about women? What did God think about women? How did God value them? Like, you know, women's live inequality. Like, were women actually equal in God's community? And what about people who identify as LGBTQ? Like, what does the Bible actually really say about all that? And does it speak to it? Um, So anyway, I wanted to learn what did the Bible actually say? I wanted to read those like so-called problem passages in the original language in Greek. I wanted to learn the background and the context and see like how they might be interpreted and what they might mean for us today. I was so excited to get closer than I ever thought possible to like the actual original words of a book or a letter or like the actual words that Jesus spoke. Bummer news, though. It's way more complicated than I thought. I think I talked about this a little in the first season. One thing I didn't know before going to seminary is that what we might call different, like, quote, versions of the Bible, like King James, NIV, NRSV, The Message, those are actually interpretations, not simply translations. Now, most interpretations of the Bible start with the original languages, which is good, in my opinion. Um, Everyone has to make their own decisions about which manuscripts to favor, whether to go with like a variant reading of a particular text. Um, So like when um, you have several copies of manuscripts that all read a a particular way, like this, this verse um, of this book reads this way, but, but then there's this other manuscript that says it differently. Like um, sometimes the people who are putting together the Bible, who are interpreting it, will choose that variant reading that one different one um, for, you know, complex reasons. Anyway, um, so there is actually, oh, oh, and then, um, of course, like biggie, um, they have to decide which word to use in the target language that the text is being translated into, which like if you've ever learned another language, you know that like word for word translation like does not it doesn't make sense. Like sentence structure is different and whatnot. Um, there's actually a lot of variety with how literal or how loose an interpretation of the Bible is. There's this like full spectrum, but I'll just mention the three main types. Okay, so the first one is literal. This is a word for word translation, and it follows the Hebrew or the Greek as closely as possible. So it will be the closest English translation of the original text. But have you ever tried to read one of these? Not only are they super awkward, like I said, sentence structure um, alone in Hebrew is very different from English, which is very different from Greek. Um, But also there are like cultural maxims and idioms, things that just don't make any sense to a non-native reader or hearer. Um, Then the second type is a dynamic equivalent. This is a thought-for-thought interpretation. So it translates the biblical words and phrases into clear and contemporary English equivalents. So the focus here 
is getting the intended meaning and putting it in a way that can be comprehended by the readers. So these um, versions are easy to read while being faithful to the original message, at least the original message as understood by the interpreters of this particular edition. The drawback here is that sometimes the original meaning of the text isn't um, clearly conveyed. And then the third type is a paraphrase. So these versions are more concerned with clarity than exact wording. So they're easy to read, but they can give the impression that the Bible is more modern than it really is. And actually, these ones are um, even more dependent on the interpreter to kind of look at those ancient texts and say, well, what would be an equivalent of that in modern day wherever I live in the language that I speak? Okay, here's what I'm going to translate that to, right? Like it's it's a lot up to the interpreter. Okay, so I'm going to give you this example. Um, So if you look up Psalm 119, verse 105, the Hebrew word that's being translated lamp in the King James has been translated into flashlight in the living Bible. Like there were no flashlights back then, of course, right? But like, is it a make or break? Like, is this a salvation issue? No, whatever. Um, Okay, so the literal translation, if you look up, um, I forget which which version I looked at, but um, literal translation is a lamp to my foot, thy word and a light to my path. So it's not like horrible, but it's kind of clunky. The dynamic equivalent says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, getting a lot clearer. The paraphrase, um, here's what's found in the message. It says, by your words, I can see where I'm going. They throw a beam of light on my dark path. Kind of, there's more liberty taken there, right? Okay, I used to do an activity with my students when I taught New Testament at Pepperdine. I would give them a handout with the same verse, but in eight different interpretations. So I wanted to provide an opportunity for them to discover how important and how complex and long the interpretive process is. Because like I said, for centuries, people shared these stories orally before they ever wrote them down. Centuries, you guys, like imagine. I mean, if I asked you to write down a story from like 10 years ago, I kind of wonder what that would look like. Um, So for centuries, they're, they're sharing these stories orally. And then they start writing and making handwritten copies of scrolls and parchments. Centuries later, they become the books and letters and poems and all that that we now refer to as the Bible. As I studied the original languages and learned how complex all this business of interpretation is, I started to take that very seriously. And between you and me, I actually became a bit of a snob about it. Like actually, um, in those first couple of years out of seminary, I was that like super annoying geek who brought my Greek New Testament to church. And, you know, whatever text we were studying, assuming we were in the New Testament, I would be looking it up and I would be following along in the Greek and, you know, in my head like, oh, yeah, nope, mm -mm, didn't get that word right. (laughs) Like So annoying and so um, arrogant. That's yeah, yeah, confession. Um, So I also had my preferred version of the Bible, which is the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, which is what we used in grad school in seminary. And it's it's a good dynamic equivalent um, translation or interpretation. I remember I had some pretty heated arguments, um, actually, while I was in grad school, um, arguments with a good friend who insisted that the King James was the only legitimate version. And I knew from my studies about the origins of the King James Version and how wacky that idea was. Um, I mean, it's well documented that King James made sure that this edition reflected his own ideology. Like, kind of sounds like a problem. Flashing red light. Okay. Um, 
And I have turned up my nose at the more loose interpretations, those that paraphrase like Eugene Peterson's The Message. I remember reading some passages from it and feeling that like intellectual arrogance because I knew better. The wording was way too modern and I thought I thought he took way too many liberties with our sacred text. Again, like, oh, so arrogant in my 20s. Um, years later, I discovered some videos that um, Eugene Peterson and Bono made. And you might have seen these. They were pretty great. Bono reflected on how life-giving Peterson's version of the Bible was. Because like here was this ancient book and it was finally readable. It was digestible. It made sense and it moved him deeply. In Peterson's own words, here's what his goal was in creating the message. So this is when uh, he first did the New Testament um, before he did the whole Bible. So his goal was to, quote, bring the New Testament to life for two different types of people, those who hadn't read the Bible because it seemed too distant and irrelevant, and those who had read the Bible so much that it had become old hat, end quote. Well, I definitely fall into that latter category. So I started making myself read multiple versions of the Bible. And although I took five semesters of Greek and two of Hebrew and was a star student, thank you very much, I have so sadly lost most of it. I mean, I could hardly consult those original texts anymore. So instead, um, so I don't get like kind of too stuck in one um, or like, you know, drilling down on like a particular word like too much. Um, Anyway, I just I read a lot of different versions and I listen carefully for what emerges. This time, what emerged really surprised me. Um, okay, it's like, it's pretty much always a surprise, but like this was a real light bulb um, moment. So two of them actually. So I actually listened, listened, like I did um, audio versions of the Bible. I think I probably listened to like six or eight different versions. And the first thing I noticed was they were all male voices. So maybe there are versions out there um, that are read and recorded by female voices. I don't know yet, but just saying now I'm kind of thinking about that. Anyway, um, okay, so here is what um, really grabbed me and surprised me. Okay, here we are at Pentecost, and all these people are gathered from all over. They're wearing the traditional dress of their home country. They're speaking their native language, and they carry with them the particular expressions and gestures and values of their culture. But there's one thing that unites them. They're all Jewish, whether by blood or by conversion. Because remember, after the first time that the temple was destroyed, more than 500 years ago, many of the Jewish people scattered and lived in other places. So, and and this has been going on for hundreds of years, okay? So they share a common ancestry, but they're living in these distant places and they're speaking different languages. And as they gather for this celebration, that's when the Holy Spirit shows up. There's a sound like wind and a vision like tongues of fire. And there are literally an infinite amount of ways to evidence the presence of the Holy Spirit. But you know what God chose? To have people speak diverse languages from faraway places. Diverse languages known to those who had traveled in from faraway places. Is this a sign, a hint at the inclusivity of God's community? I think so. It occurred to me that if God's spirit can show up and speak in all these different languages so that everyone could understand, regardless of their background or dress or gender or age or nationality, then perhaps God's spirit could also show up and speak through all these different interpretations of the Bible. And perhaps I shouldn't be so concerned with protecting some ideal of a a pristine or best or preferred version. 
Sure, there are issues with some versions of the Bible, but God's word is bigger and more powerful than all the little slicing and dicing decisions of the editors. God still speaks, and what God wants most is for people to know of God's love for them, to believe and feel and trust in that love, and to extend that love back to God, to one another, and to all of creation. And honestly, that can happen with just about any version of the Bible or no version at all. If all the books were gone, the stories would still remain. The message of love, it would still remain. God sees you. God loves you. God longs for a deeper relationship with you. I'm saying that to you as much as to me. May we be people who don't get too hung up on a particular translation or interpretation or version, who don't get too caught up in these these few words or passages of scripture over here or over there or the contradictions between them, may we be people who see that first and foremost, God is a God of love and that if there is anything that is communicated from the beginning to the end of that book, it is that God is a God of love. May we be people who don't prioritize rules and rituals and policies over people and relationships. May we be people who love God love others, and in doing so, change the world. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. You'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash jenhalechristie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at Jen Hale Christie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.